Our liturgical calendar is shaped around the major events in the life of our Lord. Christmas celebrates his birth. Epiphany celebrates his baptism. The last Sunday of Epiphany celebrates the transfiguration. First Sunday of Lent celebrates his temptation. Palm Sunday begins to celebrate his passion. Easter Day celebrates his resolution. And Pentecost celebrates his pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The rest of the year kind of falls in around those bare bones. But there are also a handful, four in number, of national holidays, Memorial Day, Independence Day, Thanksgiving Day, and tomorrow, Labor Day. These aren't normally celebrated on a Sunday, but by the power invested in me, which is not much at all, uh, I have transferred those lessons to today. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want to speak to a Christian theology of work we spend roughly half our waking hours working. Not praying, not reading our Bibles, not receiving the sacraments, but working. Ugh, working. I had a parishioner in my second church by the name of Charles William. He was older by me than several years. Uh, he retired at the age of 65, and I was very aware that when people retire, especially men, go into a kind of depression. They lost their meaning to live and everything. So I took him out to lunch, and I was kind of trying to feel around very subtly with, on this subject. And he just said, Brad, what are you trying to say? So I put it out on the table and told him. And he just laughed, put his head back and laughed. He said, Brad, the day I retired was the happiest day of my entire life. And I, he said, I hate, I'm an accountant, I hate being an accountant, and so retiring was good news. I said, well, gosh, Charles, if you hated every day of it, uh, why didn't you do something else? He said, when I was a kid growing up, I grew up during the Depression, and my parents told me there were three jobs that would always be uh, payable. One was the funeral director, but dead bodies gave me the willies. There's the minister and I wasn't holy enough to be a minister, and there was a tax collector. And I got into that and later transferred over to being an accountant. But I hated every minute of it. And he laughed, and we enjoyed a good meal. But driving home, I thought about that. And that made me incredibly sad, waking up and hating the job you were to do. So I want to offer to you three principles today, and in some ways I'm starting backwards in this sermon because I'm going to deal with the big negative. But let's start there because I think that's where many people start and finish. The first principle is this, work is hard, difficult, and painful. And we must sympathize with that singer in the Johnny Paycheck song, take this job and shove it, I ain't a going to work no more. Well, I hope at the end of this sermon that you might want to sing, take this job and love it. But let's go there, because many people find scriptural foundation for this hatred of work. They say work is a punishment for sin. 
And we do find something like that in Genesis chapter 3. God confronts Adam and Eve. He brings judgment on them, four judgments, and the fourth judgment concerns work. He says to the man in verse 17, because you have done this, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. That's work. Thorns and thistles, the sweat of your brow. If you go a few verses earlier, the judgment upon Eve, one of the thing works that women do is to give birth. And God says, henceforth, birth will be an occasion of pain and hardship. So let's just acknowledge there is much truth in this first principle. Work is hard. I tend to read history in clumps. In the last three years, I've been reading a lot of history of ancient Rome. Of course, I came across Sir Edmund Gibbons, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's an interesting work, published, oddly enough, in 1776. But in there, he opines that if one were to be born in any century, in any place of one's choosing, the best place to be born would be the second century Rome, because it was the glorious age, popular philosophy, great works of art being accomplished, success after success on the battlefield. Rome was the place to be, maybe. Well, he was a he was a rich guy, he was a noble, so maybe he thought if he would be born in Rome, he would be a noble in Rome, and maybe that would be good. But if it's just the luck of the draw, let's note this, 40% of Rome in the second century, the people were slaves. 40%. This wasn't a racial slavery, it was the slavery of enemies, but you know, a slave's a slave. And if a child is born to a slave, that person is a slave. And life for those slaves were hard. They were property. One of those great Roman emperors that Gibbon was celebrating on one occasion became patient, impatient with his slave when he misbehaved. I think he tripped and spilled something on his uh, vestments. And he took his stylus, it's kind of like a pen, and he stabbed the slave in the eye. Later on, well, you can do that. I mean, slave's property. You can do whatever you want. But later, he thought maybe that was a little bit over the top, and he apologized to the slave, and he said, what would you like to have? And I'm so happy the slave says, your majesty, I would like to have my eye back. It just underlines the fact life is hard, and a big part of that difficulty is work. Now, Constantine liberated the slaves from Constantine onward until uh, the Venetians in, I think, the 15th century. A slave became illegal in the West, legally, de jure, but de facto, they had serfs, and they were practically slaves. You were born to a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. You were born to a farmer, you would be a farmer. You would live on this land. You would give so much money to the overhead of your place. Fast forward again into the Industrial Revolution. At least the farmers got to be on the farm, but now they were inside under these intolerable conditions. Uh, go read Charles Dickens for anything on that. 
One of my heroes from the 19th century is an Anglican priest by the name of John C. Gill. He was called the Ten Hour Parson. That's a funny name for a priest, isn't it? The Ten Hour Parson. So called because he labored with Parliament to pass a social law for the working class that nobody could be forced to work longer than 10 hours a day. That's still six days a week. But that was a major step forward in the 1830s when that happened. And there's not only oppression from structures or cruel bosses, but simply from the nature of work. There's droughts and floods an infestation of locusts and grasshoppers and such. Work is hard. Uh, let's go back a bit, though. We're looking at Genesis 3. Let's go back to Genesis 2 and look for our second principle, which is work is a command of God. Before the judgment of God in Genesis 3, there is the commandment in Genesis 2, verse 13, and the Lord God took the man put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and till it. Long before there was any punishment, long before there was any sin, man was commanded to work. If you're to enjoy the fruits of the garden, you are to work and to keep the garden. John Stott, an Anglican commentator, writes, work is not a consequence of sin, but a consequence of creation. Where did Adam and Eve get their daily bread? They'd go out and plow, weed, sow, irrigate, fertilize, harvest, and then winnow, grind, knead the dough, bake, and finally serve. And they sat down and they thanked God for the bread after all that work. We may pray, give us this day our daily bread, but a lot of work precedes that bread. And let's fast forward to Genesis chapter 20. You know, that's the chapter giving the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath includes this verse, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. Yes, the commandment's primarily about the Sabbath, but incidentally there's a repetition Seven days you shall do all your work. That's a commandment. And please note, that commandment has never been rescinded by God. We're working backwards here from Genesis 3 to 2 to 1. And in 1, we find the most exciting and powerful principle at all regarding work. Work is an built-in reflection of the character of God because we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. What is the first thing that the Bible teaches about God? Well, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. You can't get much earlier than that. You know the verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the darkness. I have to confess I have a preference for the King James translation at this point. It says, and the Spirit was brooding over the deep. Don't you love that picture of brooding 
over the deep. I, I picture Michelangelo who just gets a new big block of marble and he sits down and he looks at it and he says, okay, there's something really good in there. I'm going to brood on this and until it comes to me and I get it out. That's God the creator brooding over the deep. Genesis 1 teaches us that God is a creator and a maker. And we say that in the creeds. In the Nicene Creed, we say, I believe in God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. In the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we are made in the image of God. God is free and purposeful, and so we are free and purposeful. God is social, that is within the Trinity, and so we are social beings. God is rational and logic, and so we are rational and logical. And so also, God is a worker and a craftsman, and so we, by our very nature, are workmen and craftsmen. Part of our spiritual DNA. Think about some little toddler, two or three years old, sitting on the carpet with a bunch of blocks. What does that child do? He takes those blocks and he creates something with those blocks. He makes a wall. He makes a little house. He makes a pyramid, a round pyramid, or a, a triangular pyramid, but he makes it. It's just in him. Or here's a little girl with mama's old throwaway dishes, and she makes in her mind imaginatively a feast, and then she gathers her friends and she serves that feast in there. It's built into her naturally to do that. I, I mentioned this at the earlier services about Dorothy L. Sayers. Uh, she was a companion of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Charles Williams and other, uh, part of that group called the Inklings. Does people here know who Dorothy L. Sayers is? Any of you? Okay, bless you. I, I just love this woman. She wrote probably the best book on work in the 20th century. She says in one of her works, there are two kinds of people, those who work to live and those who live to work. I think we know what she means by the first word. There are those who work to live. That is, living for that person is going out in their boat on the water and fishing. That's living. Or going up into the mountain and, and pitching a tent and enjoying the wilderness. That's living. Or sitting on the back porch with a cold beer and just enjoying the night. That's living. But you know what? To do that, I need a paycheck, and so I'm willing to work in order that I can live. But Sears turns that around, and she says, but there are people who live to work. The reason they're glad they're healthy, the reason they're glad they have their mind and their strength and their abilities is so they can work, because they're workers. It's who they are. It's part of their identity. Michelangelo did not wake up and say, another day, another dollar. John Sebastian Bach didn't say, well, it's a paycheck. These people love to work. Don't tell the vestry this, and don't tell the wardens this, but you know what? If the vestry didn't pay me, I would do what I'm doing now because I love it. God has put it into my heart, and he puts that into the mind of everyone who's open to it. What am I saying? 
that secular work is precious and valuable. And if it is offered to God, it isn't even secular work. It's a spiritual offering. See the epistle for that lesson. I don't have time for it. But we do have time to look at Exodus 31. That was our Old Testament reading. Uh, I had trouble finding this lesson. I need some help. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Can we stop there? I have filled him with the Spirit of God. I know there are many people in this church who identify themselves as charismatics. I identify myself in the most profound sense as a charismatic. And charismatics love to talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But listen to the rest of the verse. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and with all craftsmanship. To do what? To speak in tongues? No. To perform miracles? No. To prophesy? No. To devise artistic designs. The story of Exodus, basically three parts. There's the liberation and uh, uh, slavery and liberation, third. There's the in the wilderness and receiving the Ten Commandments, third. And now we are in, with this verse, we are in the part which is about the building of the tabernacle and the establishment of the priesthood. And God wants the best He can get for the tabernacle, a number of things to be built. And so he pours forth his spirit, and he calls two people to be the makers of those things. Good enough wasn't good enough. He wanted the best. And this is the first reference in all of Scripture to anyone being filled with the spirit. And it's not a prophet, and it's not a priest. It's a worker who makes stuff. goes on to say in verse uh, Six, and behold, I have appointed with them Aholiab, the son of Hamishmach and the, of the tribe of Dan. I couldn't find this passage, and I was asking the staff if they knew where it was. And without even looking up or batting an eye, Father Dan knew instantly. He says, well, that's Exodus 31. But Dan, don't think he's be impressed that you think he's smart, because notice that Aholiab is of the tribe of Dan. So I think he was just showing off. But maybe I'm just jealous because there is no tribe of bread. In any event, it says, I have given to all men ability. That's you. All men. Ability. That they are to make or craft or construct all that I have commanded you. The tent of the meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat, and many other things along the way. But God gave him skills to do that. Think of all the people in the Bible who were in secular work. Almost nobody's a priest. Jeremiah was a priest. I can't think of anybody else in the Bible who's a priest. I'm sure they were there. But you know, Paul was a tent maker. James and John were fishermen. Amos was looking after the trees. David and Moses were shepherds. Secular work. Jesus was a carpenter. You know that. Wouldn't it be cool to have a chair or table by Jesus? And I'm not saying that because, ooh, cool, 
Jesus built this table. Now, wouldn't you want that table because it would be a good table? And so all of our work is to be good. Martin Luther wrote a very famous letter to his barber, which was published all over Europe. And in it, he says, quote, the milkmaid who milks the cows is an engaged in a work, work no less holy than the monk who prays. Both have a vocation. And Martin Luther King Jr. in our own time has said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep the streets so well that all the hosts of heaven would pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. And I close this sermon with the illustration from Sir Christopher Wren. You may remember there was a fire in London that destroyed about a third of the city, including the old St. Paul's Cathedral. So he built a new St. Paul's Cathedral, and he was the architect. He built dozens, literally dozens of churches, but he built the cathedral. And it's one of the most beautiful, amazing buildings in the world. He gave it his best. And if you go down today to the crypt underneath that cathedral, to the very center part under that great dome, you will see there in the crypt, it's not larger than that carpet there, a, a monument where Sir Christopher Wren is buried. And the words around it in Latin say, if you would see my memorial monument, circumspice te, look around you. He didn't need a monument. His work was his monument. And so with us, our children see our work. Our neighbors see our work. And God sees our work. That's how we praise God, by imitating him in his workmanship. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.